Welcome to The Policy Shop, weekly conversations with public policy experts where we'll dive into the most important issues affecting all of us here in Illinois. I'm Hillary Gowans. Let's get started. Joining me today is Jordan Ryan, Senior Director of Government Affairs at Illinois Policy. Veto session just kicked off this month down in Springfield, but what the heck is veto session? What should people know and how does Springfield work in general? Jordan, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So before we get started, I know I'm going to lapse into calling you TK and people are going to be wondering sure. who is TK, but why are you called TK? Well, uh, TK is sort of my uh, pseudonym down in Springfield. Uh, it's my nickname, uh, short for Tomatoes Kid. Uh, my dad's nickname was Tomato, and there's a couple versions of why he was called Tomato, but in general, he is a redheaded, very red Irish guy uh, from Southern Illinois. And when he moved up to Chicago back in the 70s, he kind of joined the Streets and Sand crew with some, some Italians, and they called him Pomodoro, which is Italian for tomato, and kind of spiraled from there. So he was never a legislator or a lobbyist or anything sort of, you know, officially in the weird orbit of Springfield, but he was always around it. And uh, when I started working in Springfield, people would be like, it's Jordan Ryan. I was a nobody. I was like 22. And people would be like, Who the, who's Jordan Ryan? You know, and they're like, <laughs> oh, it's Tomato's kid. That's, you know, Tomato, that's Tomato's kid. And then, you know, eventually I think that became too much of a mouthful. And then TK was born from that. And for the last decade, I'll answer to TK amongst some, a lot of other names, a lot of pejoratives, but uh, TK is, is probably the, the most uh, common one to the point of like where I even have considered putting it on like business cards, uh, putting in like quotations, because like there's a good majority of people that don't know me by my real name. I don't think so. Oh, anyway, that's, that's, that's TK. That's awesome. Yeah. So you came to us from Springfield. Uh, yeah. Uh, originally from Carlinville, Illinois, uh, which is this little town in the northern southern portion of Illinois is kind of confusing, but uh, Macoupin County is sort of the, the beginning portion of southern Illinois. I uh, lived there, uh, then Springfield for kind of the first half of my life, and then Crystal Lake, Illinois, uh, where my family still lives, where I went to high school and stuff like that. All right, so, so we're going to talk about veto session here too, but before we get into what's going on with veto session, Tell everyone about why you are uniquely positioned to explain what goes on in Springfield. <laughs> well, I don't know if I'm uniquely positioned. There's probably about 500 lobbyists that work in Springfield. But previously, uh, in my former professional life, I spent a decade on House Republican staff. And for about eight years of that uh, time, I was the floor manager for the House Republicans, which my responsibilities were to kind of facilitate debate on the floor for our floor leader, which was to help kind of move the process along, kind of get a, a very shallow knowledge of every bill that comes on, on the floor. And then I was also sort of a backup parliamentarian for our, for our staff too. So kind of got to know the house rules very intimately, the procedure and the way that the house kind of operates. And then by way of just being down there, sort of the Senate as well. I like to think about, about you as sort of like the crystal ball. Whenever thing, whenever lawmakers are in session, I like to text you and say, hey, what's happening? Do, do you think this will pass? Do you think this will move? It's my favorite. Um, yeah, I'm always here to, to throw cold water on any sort of thing. Uh, I feel like I'm 
the most cynical and jaded person on staff, which is is probably a good thing because uh, everyone's so optimistic and, and cheery and, and, and hopeful. And I just kind of come in and go like, nah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> so sorry for that, guys. Sorry for bringing everyone down. Tomatoes kid, the biggest <laughs> downer in the bunch. Um, okay, so veto session this month. What's the buzz? What do you think they're going to take up? And what do people need to know? Yeah, so just for history purposes or reference, veto session typically happens between the months of October and November and sometimes even December. Veto session is sort of, I like to think of as like the cleanup session before the new spring session starts. The name obviously derives from the opportunity for legislators to override or accept vetoes that the governor has issued, but it's not necessarily limited to that, right? New things can pop up and they can take up old business. There is a provision uh, in the constitution that requires things that are passing after June 1 that have an effective date that's before June 1 of the, of the next year to have three-fifths majority vote. So they have to have a supermajority vote in both chambers. So typically it's not an easy lift for a lot of these things that are happening, but if it's, if it's dire and, and needed, then it'll happen. And oftentimes in Springfield, it's not always dire and needed, but it'll still happen anyways because of political wins and shifting wins or whatever. Um, this, this year's veto session is, is sort of light. It's only two weeks. It's scheduled October 19th, 20th, 21st, and then the following week, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, those, those next week. We'll see what happens. Uh, could be pared down to just a few days. The governor, uh, Pritzker, has been very signature happy. I think he's signed, you know, 66% of every bill that's been sent to him this year. I mean, that's not a, an accurate figure, but it's, it's something very, very high. It could even be higher for all I know. And so uh, I think we're expecting two kind of big things that we're looking out for, uh, a trailer bill to this comprehensive energy legislation that was passed during special session just a, a month, month or so ago. And a trailer bill is something that probably shouldn't exist, but it's it's a bill that is designed to fix problems in the original bill, like a trailer that you'd pull with your, with your car or something, with your truck. You'd say, why would they need that? Well, because things often get rushed through and there's unintended consequences, there's drafting errors, there's a, there's a, a plethora of reasons why a trailer bill is needed. Uh, so that's probably the, the biggest one. And then the second biggest one that we'll see what happens and it's sort of a, it's a you know, third rail politically, but they're going to maybe take up the Parent Notification Act, which is an abortion-related issue that says that 12-year-olds and up to 18-year-olds have to report to their parents when they seek to get an abortion. So they want to get rid of that parental notification. And this is sort of riding on those tailwinds of what's happened in Texas and Alabama and other places where all of these tester laws have been passed that are trying to get up to the Supreme Court to challenge Roe v. Wade. And obviously with the Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court in session right now, I think we'll see shortly whether or not those will hold up to muster. But, you know, that that's a pretty far reach for even some of these extremely pro-choice people. And with an election year on the uh, on our heels here, that's a hard vote. So we'll see if that happens. So more broadly speaking, in terms of, you know, sort of like the question, how does Springfield work? Um, you just mentioned the election year. And so I'm curious how that affects the normal legislative process and, and what you expect for next year when lawmakers return. 
Yeah, so uh, a general assembly is always an odd year and then an even year. And so the first year of the GA is the odd year, and it's on the heels of an election. And this is typically when most of the work gets done in a, in a general assembly. So and during an election year, during the even number years, um, we usually call it like skinny session or light session. And it's usually kind of limited to things that are better, that are really just needed. So passing the budget, the budget implementation, which is BIMP, which we call BIMP bill, if you hear me say that later on, that's what the BIMP is. Anything that would be sunsetting, which is a law that has a date in which it is no longer effective. So say like December 31st, 2022, uh, we would need to take that up during regular session. Otherwise, you know, on January 1 of 2023, that is no longer an effective law. And that, that usually affects like sort of licensure and stuff. And, and in that area, professional regulation. And so we don't want a lot of people out there losing their license and their ability to do work in the state of Illinois. And, and there's some, and there's some like workarounds and all of this stuff, of course, but typically in a skinny session or a light session, that's what we're like mostly focused on. Obviously that's not to say that that's hundred percent and that there won't be other things that arise during the session, but typically that's what we're looking at. All right. So TK people don't quite understand how a bill becomes a law. Sure. In Illinois, I think what people see, obviously, is the headlines every spring when something does pass, and then they start to consider how it might affect their lives. But you yeah. know firsthand that so much goes into, you know, not only a bill becoming drafted, but then sponsored and heard in committee, and then sure. everything else that goes into passing legislation. So can you walk people through the actual process for getting a bill passed in Springfield? What has to happen? How does it work? Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's definitely like the very linear sort of way that it should happen or it, or it could happen. And then there's this uh, super kind of zigzaggy back and forth, almost like a tennis match volleying that kind of takes place. Um, and then of course there's these uh, different ways with vetoing and AV, but let's just talk about the linear sort of way that it probably should work or the way that it could like could happen in a perfect world. Although Springfield rarely is perfect. Um, but typically a bill is drafted through the LRB, which is the Legislative Reference Bureau. There are a bunch of nonpartisan attorneys that are employed by the state, by the GA. GA means General Assembly. Sorry if I you know use some of these acronyms. We're an acronym heavy group of people that work down in Springfield. Um, and they, they are given an issue area, a, a portion of statute, which is our laws, Illinois compiled statutes, and they draft bills. And that's, and that's all they do for all four caucuses, which is the Illinois House Democrats, Illinois House Republicans, Senate Democrats, and the uh, Senate Republicans. And then they also draft for interest groups, lobbyists, advocates, whatever you want to call them. People like me, right? Uh, they draft our legislative agenda, too. So from there, you have to find a sponsor, and this has to be an elected member of the General Assembly, so a senator or, or a House member, a representative, and you f- they will file the bill. And so it'll be filed with a number, uh, HB means House Bill, Senate, SB means Senate Bill, and it'll be, let's just say, House Bill 1 or Senate Bill 1, right, just for sake of ease. From that point in the House, it goes to what we call the Rules Committee. And then in the Senate, it's called assignments. And those two committees are functionally the same, but they're sort of like what we like the clearinghouse. And they decide where to put the bill based on issue area. And in any given General Assembly 
in the House, there's usually around, I think, like 60-ish committees. And there's subcommittees underneath that. The Senate's a little bit a little bit lighter, you know, maybe not half, but but you know, a quarter or a third of as many, again with subcommittees and stuff like that. And so then the bill gets kicked out. Um, well, it could, it could also just stay there and die, uh, but it could get kicked out to those committees. Then the committee will take up the bill and vote whether to move it on to the floor. And if it does get voted out of committee, then it moves onto the floor. And from there, the, the chamber will take it up and then it'll switch over to the other chamber if it's passed out. And then the process basically starts all over again in the other chamber uh, to the point of if there's no amendments or anything like this and it was drafted 100% correctly and it's just gone through, then the other chamber, the, the secondary chamber will pass it and it'll be sent on to the governor for signature. And if the governor signs it, then that's called a public act, PA, and it's given a number and then that is now state law. Of course, there's many different ways that that can happen. Uh, amendments can be added to a bill, which then sort of kind of restart the process in varying degrees. There's a committee amendment, which means it goes back to committee. The committee has to recommend that the floor as a whole adopts it. It's called recommends be adopted, RBA. And then the House or Senate would pass that, and that would be called do pass as amended to the other chamber. And then if it's passed out of one chamber and then amended in the second chamber, and then it goes back again to that to the original chamber, that chamber then has to do something called concur with the amendment that happened in the, in the previous chamber. And I'm sorry if this is getting all sort of in the weeds a little bit, but that's just generally kind of how these things work. And so if a concurrence happens, then that is effectively means that they agree that with the amendment that's taken place in the other chamber, and then that goes on to the governor for signature. At any given point, a governor can either accept it, which means it becomes law. He can issue a total veto, which means that outright says, I don't want any of this. Or um, in the cases of sub uh, substantive bills, so not a probe, he can do what they call an amendatory veto. And that's basically saying, I like some of this. I think this needs a change. You guys can either accept that or you can override me or you can just forget about it and then it just doesn't become law. And it's also kind of worth noting that in Illinois, we don't have what they call a pocket veto, which is just not acting on it. Like when the president gets a piece of legislation from Congress, if, if uh, he or she doesn't act on it, then it, it's vetoed effectively. In Illinois, we actually, we call it like a desk signature. So within 60 days, if he doesn't act on the 60th day, then it becomes law. And that's sort of a passive way of saying, I don't totally agree, but whatever, you know, it's law now. Um, and I don't want to get involved. So that's sort of the, the more traditional way, or I guess the straightforward way of, 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 of the legislative process. I, I think that's really helpful. So I guess just to summarize, so if I have an idea, I'm a state lawmaker, I have an idea for something that I think yeah. we should adopt legislatively. I get the bill drafted, the bill is filed, it's heard in committee, committee passes it out. Both the House and the Senate have to vote to pass my bill, and then either the governor signs it or it just becomes law by virtue of he or she not doing anything, right? Correct. Yeah, no, that's that's a great summary. Obviously, there's, like I said, there's a, there's a few other ways, but that's generally the way it should work. And, and hopefully everyone's kind of, you know, taking time to be thoughtful about what they're drafting and, and the, all the effects and stuff like that so that it can just move as smoothly as possible. All right, Jordan. So the big news is that uh, Governor Pritzker just certified this 
Mondo ethics package, which was kind of hanging out in limbo for a while. Tell us about what happened with that bill. Why was it out there for so long? And how was the process a little different for the ethics package? Yeah, so uh, the omnibus uh, bill, which you described as a Mondo bill, which I, I think we should adopt that as the, the common uh, terminology from moving forward, but the, the Mondo <laughs> omnibus bill uh, that for ethics was passed at um, kind of the 11th hour back in May 31st, uh, like the last day of session, the last actual hour of session from the GA and was sent to the governor's desk where it kind of lingered for a while. And in Illinois, we don't have a, we don't have a pocket veto. And so he wasn't signing it. And so a lot of us thought that potentially that was what was going to happen and just kind of let it go into law kind of under the cover of night or something. But then he issued an, a mandatory veto and, and make, you know, issue corrections. And, and um, it's effectively amending the bill as it's in the name. Um, uh, from his, from their office, and then going back to the GA, where they have to make a motion to either agree with the changes that was made by the governor or reject those changes, and and then and then it becomes law if they reject those changes as it was passed originally. Um, this is an unusual process for the GA to take up under Madigan for a number of years. Was something that was never really. Uh, used uh, because Speaker Madigan did not believe that that was a power that should have been given to the governor, uh, to the governor's office as it's effectively legislating. And so very rarely is it ever taken up. So it was sort of an interesting way for it to play out because this was a Mondo bill, as you said, and it was a comprehensive ethics chain uh, reform that, you know, literally has not happened for a long time in, in, in the state and was desperately needed. So um, this, this change was sort of a technical change in nature, which just means that they were trying to clarify some language for the executive inspector general so they wouldn't be confused about what was happening. Though, you know, I think that was a little weak of an excuse, but either way, there was, there was really no chance that the Senate or the House wasn't going to accept the changes because they needed this bill to move forward for a number of reasons. And so in September-ish, I believe, yeah, September, uh, the Senate came back in and made a motion to concur with or agree with the governor's uh, mandatory veto. Then it went over to the House. And surprisingly, the House in the first vote did not uh, agree with the motion and the, the motion failed. And constitutionally, once the second chamber takes up the motion, they have to act within 15 days to certify the AV or it dies completely. And then it's back to the drawing board. And so this was uh, something that, you know, obviously was on a lot of people's minds. And fortunately, or I guess, unfortunately, depending on where you fall on the issue, the comprehensive energy bill was, was uh, coming into an agreement. And so they, the House met the following week and agreed to the changes in the AV and then it went back to the governor for certification. So it's not signature, it's a different process. And uh, it happened so, it didn't happen so often that like we kind of didn't really understand like what would certification look like? It's not a signature. Like, does he just have to put a stamp on it? Like, what does that mean exactly? Um, and so for a few, like almost an entire month at the point, uh, up until yesterday, um, it just sat waiting for certification and then the governor certified it and so now it is effectively law when it when it goes into effect on January 1 of 2022 but yeah that's the weird saga of the ethics bill in Springfield and uh, a really kind of convoluted lesson on a minatory veto process that we all learned together 
All right, so TK, now we all understand kind of how the mandatory veto process works. Yeah, kind of, for sure. And, well, yeah, and uh, the added bonuses that our public corruption problem is totally fixed, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, there's no more uh, to be done. Uh, definitely over. I think we all feel much better now that the governor certified it. But uh, no, I, I do think that obviously we're going to keep pushing for for further reforms, and we do have some stuff on our legislative legislative agenda to to keep pushing the issue to the to the forefront of people's minds. So there's a lot of work to be done. But yes, I think right now corruption's over, and uh, we can all sleep better at night. All right. So I feel like if I didn't say the words pension reform on this podcast, I'd probably have to take a <laughs> shot or something. Um, <laughs> So we kind of established here, right, that if you want to pass a bill, you draft it, get it filed, move it through committee, the house, both houses vote, governor signs it. But how does pension reform work, right? Because we have to amend the constitution to actually fix the pension problem. So how is that different from a regular bill? Yeah, so any constitutional amendment as a, as a tricky situation. So they're filed as either a House or Senate joint resolution constitutional amendment. So an HJRCA or an SJRCA, which is a mouthful. And like I said earlier, like we're an acronym heavy group of folks down there. And so basically the, the resolution is adopted. It's not passed, but it's adopted by the General Assembly. This has the governor has no bearing on this. There's no veto power. There's no ability for anyone to intervene. So if both chambers agree uh, that's that joint portion of the of the acronym, then it is then put to the voters of the state of Illinois. And it goes on to the next general election ballot. And so that is a is a big hurdle because not only do you have to get you know the majority of 177 legislators to agree that this is something that's needed, then you need the majority of Illinoisans voting on the matter on the issue. So it's not even just 50% of Illinoisans agreed, it has to be 50 plus one on that particular amendment uh, vote. So it's, it's, it's a big hurdle. Um, it's not unreachable or something like that, but it is, it is a pretty big one. So, you know, we, we will be filing or refiling our, our pension fix um, as a constitutional amendment and be advocating for that down in Springfield for the, for the members to take up and to give the people of Illinois uh, the choice to fix pensions and to do something that hasn't been done and that's desperately needed to be done. I think since, what was it, 2013 when Senate Bill 1, which was just a bill, there was no constitutional amendment change or no constitutional change, was struck down by the Illinois Supreme Court. And that's where that constitutional change has to come in. Yeah. And I think it's interesting to note, too, that our hold harmless pension reform plan actually borrows a lot from Senate Bill 1. And I think people think that IPI is super unreasonable about pension reform. And maybe historically, there could have been some truth to that. Um, although I, I don't I don't know that I would agree with that. But it was definitely a different look a few years back. Um, but now, yeah, yeah, I think our proposals actually super modest. I, I would agree. Um Obviously, we're, we're, we're basically looking for what I would say, like an honest COLA. And I'm not talking about like Coca-Cola. It's cost of living adjustment. There's those acronyms coming back. Um, and right now, it's, you know, for tier one uh, beneficiaries, it's, it's 3% compounding every year. Um, and that's not really a cost of living adjustment. That's, that's, a, that's a pay raise. And it's not their fault, right? Like a lot of these people have worked very hard. Um, they've earned their benefits. 
but it was a blank check that was written without any sort of forethought or foresight almost 30 years ago, right? When this was last adjusted. So, um, you know, there's a lot of unintended consequences that have happened in, in the meantime, and the most being our, our pension liability just ballooning out of control. So an honest, true COLA tied to, you know, some sort of performance index, I think is, is not only reasonable, but is most, you know, most Illinoisans, residents of the state would probably go, yeah, that makes sense. I'm not getting a, a day in, day out, 3% compounding raise every year, you know, um, rain, rain or shine. Um, that's not to say that, like, I mean, in the current climate and, uh, you know, of our, uh, with our, what's going on with our economy, I mean, inflation's high. They'd actually be making more money currently under, under our proposal than they would or under, you know, what, what they get right now. Um, but then maybe in two or three years, if things sort of like flatten out and straighten out, um, it would go back to being sort of the regular intended cost of living adjustment so that these fixed income earners aren't, you know, having to force themselves out of their house, you know, or move or whatever. But that goes into the property tax issue and so, so many other things that we need to fix to kind of bring the health and the economic health back to the state of Illinois. People scratch their heads and wonder why isn't anything happening on pension reform? And I don't think many people realize that we've been filing a pension reform, a piece of pension reform legislation for like at least a decade. Um, right. I think, you know, it, it's definitely a heavy lift to get a constitutional amendment on the ballot for sure, um, because that legislation has to go through the entire pro- same entire process as a regular bill, except that instead of going to the governor, for signature, it has to go to the people, like you just said. Right. But, you know, then things like the progressive tax get rushed through because it's a priority, of course, of the governor. And so it's really right. just a matter of political will, right? Yeah, no, 100%. And obviously, there's some very powerful voices um, down in Springfield that don't want pension reform to happen in a way that's protecting their members. And like, I can kind of sympathize with them to some extent, because when you're hired to do this job, you have to advocate, you know, the best that you can for, for your people. Um, But, you know, sometimes you got to look past that and say, what's, what's for the greater good, what's, what's for the good of the entirety of the state um, and not just your membership. And, you know, I'm not here to bash on anybody, but, you know, I think there's, there's time the time is now, or well, really it was, you know, 10 years ago, it was 20 years ago, but it certainly is uh, still true today that the time is now that we have to take up this, this comprehensive plan um, and, and get us back on the right course. Yeah. And, you know, pensions obviously are a big topic we care about. Another topic that we really care about that you have some interesting insight into probably is the way the budget process works. Um, I think from an outsider perspective, no one, do people really pay attention to the budget? They just assume that the government spends money, but if you actually start paying attention to the process, it, it becomes really unnerving. The fact that they pass these budgets, sometimes they don't even get 24 hours to review the spending plan before they have to vote on it. Um, how does it work from your perspective? Cause you've been down there for this. Well, uh, I think interesting is a good like uh, euphemism for what I would actually want to say um, <laughs> about the process. But, um, you know, in, in my you know over a decade experience down in Springfield, I, you know, I, I was never strong with numbers. So I was never really I, I did have appropriations responsibilities on staff, some budgeting stuff, but they, they, they typically gave me the 
the self-sustaining budgets uh, of these state agencies. So I was purposefully kept in the dark a lot so that I couldn't mess anything up more than it already is messed up. But typically how the, the process sort of works is that there's appropriations committees in both chambers and they hold hearings throughout the entirety of the session from different state agencies and from advocacy groups and whatever. And they say like, what do you need? What are you operating on right now? How has the last budget affected you? What do you want to see improve? Where do you think you can you know, tighten the belt, et cetera, et cetera? That's not a problem. That's actually a good way to go about budgeting, right? These, these sort of long drawn out hearings that are asking questions about like the people that are actually spending the money or the people that are the money is going to to be spent. Um, and how they're operating with it. That's a good way to do it. But they kind of happen in silos and they don't happen where they're really kind of communicating throughout the entirety of the year. And not every member is a part of a appropriations committee, let alone all of the different ones that are out there. So some knowledge is, is, is isolated to, you know, 10 or 15 people here and another 10 or 15 over there and, and so on and so forth. And we're talking in like education K through 12 and then higher education, which is all of our university systems or, or what happens in the medical field or whatever. So these are all the different areas where the probe happens. Um, and, and by the way, I should also mention that the governor comes out with their budget proposal in February. Um, it says, here's my wish list. Please follow, please do this. This is what I want. And so it's sort of guided by that during these hearings. And then we get to May and then that's all thrown out the window. None of that matters, you know, kind of in a realistic view. And I'm sure there's a lot of people, some former colleagues and my former bosses are probably kind of grinding their teeth at me saying this, but yeah, I, you know, I think, it, it, it just didn't matter at the very end of the day. And so then what happens is the budget was either already kind of configured um, behind closed doors by a select few group of people, the budgeteers, and then it is brought out sometimes in stages, sometimes in multiple bills. And then it is kind of forced through, you know, we like to say like in the 11th hour, uh, but not always. I mean, sometimes it actually is forced through <laughs> prior to May 31st, but it's still forced through. And you know, there's very little input from a lot of the people who mean well. And, and it's not to say that everybody that's involved has bad intentions, but this is just such a huge plane to land that sometimes it, it you know, they, they feel it, they deemed it necessary uh, to do it this way. And, I, you know, I think there's, there's other ways to do it. I don't know why it landed on this other than people needed to do it behind closed doors and they needed, you know, to make sure that their stuff was being funded and other people's stuff wasn't being funded so they could take it back to con constituents and say, you know, I'm the rainmaker or whatever it might be. But, you know, we have a, we have a suggestion in our legislative agenda that um, could help address this. Um, and that's a three-day reading requirement. And what, when, when what that means is, so constitutionally, every piece of legislation has to be read three times on three separate days. And so usually that means when it's filed, it's read for the first time by the clerk or the secretary. The clerk is in the House, the secretary is in the Senate. Then when it is passed out of committee and it's on the floor, then it's usually read for a second time. And that's a second separate day. And, and often those days aren't you know, consecutive. Those just, they, but they have to be three separate days. And then when it is voted on on, on the chamber floor, then it is usually the third reading. And then that's, we call that the third reading. And that is the third day that it's read on. Um, and there's ways to get around that sort of constitutional requirement. We call them shell bills or vehicle bills. Shell bills are bills that are filed with a simple line change, uh, word change. It crosses out the word the and replaces it with the word the. Um, and they get passed in mass. They get read a second time and then they just sit. 
and they're basically primed and ready to go with an amendment. And the amendments aren't um, beholden to those same rules. The bill itself is, but not the amendment. And so that's the way that they can kind of make these last minute changes to things and, and pass it on. And the amendments are restricted to rules that have been self-implemented and voted on by the House or the Senate. And so to say they're porous, you know, maybe is an understatement, but they're, they're kind of porous. I mean, they'll adhere to them as best they can, but there's always ways to vote something through, to posting requirements, um, all these different things. And so a three-day reading requirement that we're proposing would say, not only are the bills subject to the three-day reading requirement, but also the amendments. And that means that the clock restarts every single time something's filed. Um, and this gives people that are listening to this, other residents of the state of Illinois, anybody that's sort of generally interested in what's happening and other advocates, the time to kind of take a breath, read what's actually been put in there, and then formulate, you know, opposition or, or support, depending on where they fall on the issue. And I know that this is going to be something that's going to make, you know, a lot of people in Springfield frustrated because they need this sort of ability to, to move things quickly, or they, or they think that they need to have this ability to move things quickly. But, you know, I think if you were to take a poll, just a sort of man on the street poll, uh, not really scientific. If I were to walk down here on Sedgwick and, and Webster and wait for five people to walk by, I bet all five people would say that they agree, you know, with this, with this idea and that passing a bill like the budget on an artificial timeline that was basically self-imposed. I mean, that was created purposefully to kind of put that pressure on is so unnecessary in, in, the, in the scheme of things. So. Yeah. It's really difficult to go through budget season because if, you do the kind of work that we do, you know, we want to be looking at what's in the proposal and be able to explain to people what's going on. Same with any piece of legislation. Right. right? right. Um, and if we don't have any time to look at the bill, especially big packages, then we have no idea how to understand whether this is good, whether it's bad, whether there are components that should be addressed. And so I, I think this is a really important solution that people should be paying attention to. I, I agree. I think it's, I think it's definitely needed. And I think it's long overdue. I, I don't think we're the first people to ever propose the idea, but I think we will certainly be the first people to be down there kind of banging the drum and, and putting that as a um, priority. All right. Well, TK, I know you got a lot to do. I'm going <laughs> to wrap up here, but thanks for everything you do. I know that you are grinding down in Springfield and you're really serving as someone who has a voice for taxpayers across the state and we really appreciate everything you do. Thanks. Well, yeah, thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To keep up with all of our work at the Illinois Policy Institute and to sign up for our newsletter, visit illinoispolicy.org. If you like what you heard today, subscribe and give us a five-star review. We'll see you next week for another episode of The Policy Shop.